I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a weekly podcast produced by Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy, CURE. On today's episode, I am honored to be joined by Dr. Charles Marcicelli, Division Chief of Pediatric Neurology and Director of Pediatric Epilepsy at Rush University Medical Center. Dr. Marcicelli received his MD and PhD in Neuropharmacology and Neurophysiology from the University of Chicago. He is also my daughter, Adelaide's doctor. He's here today to talk about helping the general public understand the facts of epilepsy. Thank you so much for coming to chat with us today, Dr. Marcicelli. It's nice to see you outside of the hospital. Thanks for having me, and it's a pleasure to be here. So epilepsy is one of the oldest recorded diseases, yet we still know so little about it, and the public knows even less. Why is that? Why has so much time gone by and we're still so in the dark? Uh, as you point out, it is a disease that is ancient. It's described uh, as early as 400 BC. Uh, and essentially, as soon as a seizure was, dis was observed, people have tried to explain it. In ancient times, people thought that patients were being possessed or punished. This was something that was done to them. Hence the word seize, which means to be taken hold of. Uh, forcibly. I'd never put that together before. Yes. Uh, we talk about 65 million people worldwide having epilepsy, but 80% of those are due uh, to infectious causes, uh, typically neurosister sarcosis, which is endemic in many parts of the world, uh, particularly developing countries. And if a person had a seizure due to an infection, of course, the concern was that I could catch this somehow. And so uh, from that perspective, uh, patients uh, early on, before we understood the, the pathophysiology of these infections, uh, would tend to stay away from people with epilepsy. We now know that neurosister sarcosis is a parasitic infection, a tapeworm infection, uh, that one typically gets nowadays from eating undercooked pork. So it seems that we've struggled with defining epilepsy almost from the earliest observations. Uh, I think the reason why it's hard for people to understand relates to the wide range of uh, severity, uh, the widely different types of seizures that mm -hmm. patients can experience. Uh, in, ter in terms of the uh, causes as well. The fact that epilepsy is associated with so many comorbid conditions. Define comorbid. So these are other disorders or conditions uh, besides the epilepsy, such as attention deficit disorder or anxiety or depression. Uh, and finally, I think there is variability in terms of the impact of epilepsy on the individual and the family. Let's start with the severity that you mentioned first, because I, that, um, that absolutely rings true. And I think, you know, we've seen it on this show. I've certainly seen it in my own life. You know, we have Adelaide, who is, you know, neurodevelopmentally a newborn, 
essentially, you know, sometimes, you know, she's gotten up to about a four or five month developmental level, but, you know, she spent most of her life there. She's never going to be fully assimilated into, um, into our culture. But then you have people like Kurt Eichenwald, who is a best-selling author and has written these movies in an incredible book. We had him on this show. You know, how can there be an Adelaide and a Kurt with the exact same disease? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I, I, I like to use as an example obsance epilepsy or staring spells. Uh, we like to say that epilepsy is a common phenotype. That means what the condition or disorder looks like with multiple genotypes, meaning different causes. So I could have within my clinic three different patients with staring spells. I could have a child who has 20 to 30 staring spells a day lasting 20 seconds each. And this child, uh, hypothetically speaking, uh, developed that epilepsy at about three to four years of age. And so this child probably has childhood absence epilepsy. Contrast this with another child who also has 20 to 30 staring spells per day, brief, but in contrast to the first kid, this child has uh, generalized tonic-clonic seizures and developed the seizure much later, nine, 10 years of age. In the first case, that child will probably outgrow that epilepsy by the time she's a teenager and has gone through puberty. In the second case, that child has a lifelong condition that she'll have to deal with. Um, a third case is a child who comes with a staring spell, perhaps developed it at nine, the epilepsy at nine years of age, and this child will have longer staring spells uh, and perhaps uh, they can progress to generalized tonic-clonic seizures. The first two kids probably have a genetic cause, and the third kid may have a genetic cause but could also have other causes such as malformations of cortical development. What the public sees is the staring spells, but each have a different trajectory. The first one will likely outgrow it. The second one will have to deal with this through adulthood. And the third, it may be uncertain. And I think that leads me to the severity uh, question. Um, I've taken care in the past of a, a patient, a young man, you know, I won't give too many details here who uh, essentially had one seizure per year. Um, he'd have a seizure, come in the clinic, I'd make a medication adjustment. I would then uh, see him in six months, he's doing great, I'm patting myself on the back, and then six months later he has another seizure. Make another medication adjustment, six months later he's doing well, and I think I'm doing well. Mm -hmm. Six months later he has another seizure. After about three years, I was beginning to realize I wasn't really helping him much and that his pattern of seizures was once a year. And so I frequently ask the residents or my EG technicians, could you live with or tolerate one one-minute generalized tonic seizure per year? It's not really a fair question, right? Because they help me mm -hmm. with my patients who have epilepsy and they put on EEG leads and the vast majority of them would say, you know, Dr. Marcaccioli, I think I could do one seizure a year. Doesn't seem so severe. In comparison with? In comparison. Sure. 
But what if I said, this young man, and let's just say he's 22, for six months out of the year, in most states, he can't drive. Right. Now he can't go to school. He's going to have a difficult time getting or holding a job. And this may affect his relationships. And suddenly one seizure a year isn't so benign. So we have this whole range of, of uh, comorbidities mm -hmm. that we need to consider. It's not just the seizures, but it's also what impact the seizure has on one's life. Right. Um, so you have mentioned now at this, you know, we've, we've sort of gone over a handful of different seizures, the absence, the, the tonic-clonics, which um, to the general public, that's sort of the grand mall movie style seizure. Adelaide's are spasms, but she's also had these bizarre atonic seizures where we patted her on the back and she'd sort of slump. I think that that in and of itself adds to the misunderstanding and the complications, just the wide variety of the number of seizures. Um, help us learn more about that. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. In 1987, uh, Gallup performed a poll of um, United States citizens and was curious about what the public actually knew about epilepsy and its cause. And in that poll, only 50% of the uh, respondents could identify a cause of seizures. Really? It's pretty remarkable, uh, despite the fact that it's so prevalent. There's, again, 65 million people worldwide. One in 26. So it's pretty interesting. 19% of those respondents thought it was a brain disorder, and one in six thought it was a mental health issue. Oh my gosh. Let's look at the causes of epilepsy. Um, epilepsy is a disorder that it kind of occurs at the extremes of life. It's a disorder of the young, Mm -hmm. and a disorder of the old. Now, I'm going to pause you for a minute. So you, we've used the word condition, disorder, disease. Is one more accurate than the other? Are they all correct? What words should we be using? I think, in my opinion, they're all relatively correct. Interchangeable. And interchangeable. Okay. Back seizure up, back to where seizure <laughs> would be the symptom. And if a patient has uh, two seizures in, uh, separated by more than 24 Hours, then we can we consider it epilepsy. Okay. Um, so, as I said, epilepsy is a condition that kind of occurs at the extremes of life. It's it's one that has a higher incidence in the young, mm -hmm. and a higher incidence in in in, in the old. Uh, and the the causes in these two groups is very different. And so, in the very old, it's relatively easier to understand. Uh, it's mostly due to stroke mm. or some tumor. And in the young, 65% of the time, we don't really know the cause. Uh, we assume that most of those are probably genetic mutations, but other things it could be. Brain malformations, uh, you know, developmentally the brain doesn't develop the way it should, mm -hmm. and uh, that sometimes predisposes to epilepsy. Tumors, strokes do happen in the young, they're rare, but they can happen. Autoimmune diseases, traumatic brain injury uh, and infection. Uh, the aging neuron would be something we would see in the elderly. And so ironically, the third most common neurological disorder, Alzheimer's disease, oftentimes 
patients can have seizures as part of that condition. So you mentioned um, post-traumatic epilepsy, um, which is something that cures currently um, a part of a, a large grant with the, the DOD. This was not something that I was really aware of before CURE took this on, and I, so I want to take a minute to, to talk about that, this idea that, okay, so I think we're sort of you know, comfortable with the idea, okay, you have epilepsy as a result of brain tumors with Alzheimer's, uh, a genetic condition, but this idea that you could get it from a brain injury. Um, sort of explain what post-traumatic epilepsy is and, and what that means and what people should know about that. The brain can experience a lot of different forms of trauma. Most of the time when I use the term post-traumatic, I'm referring to a situation where someone uh, sustained a head injury, uh, perhaps due to a motor vehicle accident or uh, for those serving in the military uh, in the course of combat. Uh, and, and it's, I think, important to, to separate those two particular ones um, because combat injuries are much more likely to result in epilepsy as a secondary complication. Um, but the truth of the matter is infection can cause trauma to the brain. <clears throat> so too can autoimmune diseases, you know, all sorts of things. In it's the, all interconnected. It's all interconnected. So when a brain sustains injury, uh, there are a lot of processes that happen. Um, in, in, and so the, the neuron, the brain cell, can be injured and it wants to recover. It wants to kind of fix itself and resume its normal function of transmitting electrical signals. And there are a number of mechanisms which help the brain do that. Sometimes the brain is successful and sometimes it's not so successful and what one gets is aberrant or um, problems with the wiring or the network itself. Okay. So about 25% of patients who sustain a traumatic brain injury uh, from you know, a motor vehicle accident will have um, epilepsy as a secondary complication. Uh, and, and by that I mean they may recover from the brain injury itself, but you know, several months to done. later, several months to years later, yes, the damage has been done. And that person now has to deal with the epilepsy, which is this ability, unfortunately, to see spontaneously and unpredictably. Mm -hmm. um, and the greater the injury, of course, uh, uh, the more likely uh, that risk. And I think that's why we tend to see it more frequently in in patients who have uh, sustained their brain injury in combat. I have to bring up and question, question you know, as you are a clinician, um, we have been inpatient with Adelaide before and we've had other specialists come into the room because you know Adelaide very well um, and she's a little complicated. Um, and so, you know, it's affecting her brain, but that in turn affects multiple systems within her body. And we will have other specialists come into the room and they sort of go hands off. Oh, she's a neuro kid. They defer to neuro on everything. They, it's almost as if they're afraid to touch her or that they're afraid that they're gonna do something wrong or they just don't understand her. How do we change that? How do you, how do you get the general public to understand epilepsy if, even within the medical community itself, 
they're sort of have their hands up and um, claiming ignorance? I think that's a great question. It's surprising to me that <clears throat> it took as long as I believe 2014 for epilepsy to become a separate boarded specialty. So it was just general neurology, but we didn't have true epileptologists until four or five years ago. Five, yeah. five years ago. Uh, so for me personally, I recall when I began my training in child neurology, I went through my uh, neurology uh, fellowship, I went my pediatric neurology fellowship, I went through my epilepsy fellowship, and after about a year or two, I realized that I could read EEGs pretty well, but I was perhaps lacking in, in dealing with a lot of the nuances of epilepsy and uh, you know, all of the comorbidities that we're talking about, you know, not only treating the child with the seizures, but also all of these other associated conditions. And, and treating the entire person and, and not just the, the seizures. Person. Uh, and, and for some of those kids, that means uh, oxygen requirements. As you know, it means uh, dealing with G-tubes. So at that point, um, like many others, I decided that I really needed to kind of train with uh, and, and work with, I had already finished my training at that point, uh, somebody in the field who really understood epilepsy and uh, someone who uh, knew how to do epilepsy surgeries because I was interested in also learning the surgical management. And that's when I moved my family up to Milwaukee to work with Dr. Mary Zupons. Uh, and I learned a great deal about how to treat this really complex disorder. And I've tried to come back and at each center that I've been in, try to help other physicians uh, kind of uh, understand what's needed in, in the treatment. The other thing I've realized, and I've said this to you before, um, these children have changed me in very profound ways. Um, Adelaide is my patient, but she's also been my teacher, and I've learned a great deal from her. And that knowledge has further enabled me to take better care of other patients. And so I actually embrace the children who are the most complex because they've been my greatest teachers. Um, I think, you know, for some physicians, um, these are challenging patients. Uh, and my hope is, is to be able to provide a, a center or to build a, a center that comprehensively treats uh, children with epilepsy, and I can't do that alone. I can't, it's just not the epilepsy. It's, you know, I need psychiatrists, and I need uh, pulmonologists, and I need cardiologists, and I need all, and I need a specialized PEDS ICU. And, um, and I think that's what's really lacking if we look kind of nationwide, is we need, uh, our patients with epilepsy need access to centers that can provide this comprehensive care. There's a great need for this, and it's something that we've talked about before that I don't think that people understand is that there, is, there are not enough epileptologists out there. You know, you would love to do more research, but you are so desperately needed in the clinic, helping the patients and, and finding that balance between, you know, treating 
treating the kids, but you know, how, you can't be out there searching for a cure when you're just putting band-aids on the problem. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's, um, I, I remember the day well when my focus went more towards clinical and somewhat away from research. It was in 2008, yeah, the country was struggling with the economy and all sorts of other issues. And I was sitting in my lab, just, you know, kind of doing my research. Uh, at that point, I only had one half day of clinic a week. And I had a wonderful young nurse working with me and she came into the lab, you know, frequently to go over the patients and informed me that I had something along the lines of a six month waiting list. I don't remember exactly. Oh my gosh. And that I would probably need to add additional clinics. And I asked her, I said, well, you know, how long has this been going on? And she had said for quite some time. And for me, that was a real moment because uh, I believed in my heart that what I was doing in the laboratory was going to lead to advances that would help children in the future. But I was coming to the realization that I could probably do more, at least in the short term, by having more clinics and, and, and helping them more immediately. And so I changed the focus of my lab and started to do more, um, you know, looking at genetics and pharmacogenetics and some neurocomputation stuff with colleagues, you know, across the country and things that I could still be active in, mm -hmm. but also play more of a, a role in terms of alleviating suffering, which is essentially what I promised to do when I got my MD degree. Well, while we uh, miss your time in the lab, I can tell you that the Cervantes family is very, very thrilled that you added on those extra clinic hours because um, I don't know that Adelaide would be alive without you. Thank so. you. How can you know, someone who's listening today, you know, how can they help educate their community, their peers, their family, um, try and you know, help them to better understand what epilepsy actually is and that it's not just the movie version, that that is part of it too, um, but you know, that they're, you know, the complexities. How, how, how can we within the community better engage those outside of it? I think programs like this really help. Uh, and, and I like the focus of what you are accomplishing here. Uh, you know, trying to raise that awareness and, and having people share it on social media. You know, since I started training, the world has really changed. Um, you know, I started at a time, really, um, when the internet was somewhat of a novelty. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and now, um, you know, everyone has a cell phone and social media is, is so much more, um, integrated in our lives. Uh, you know, I certainly see that in the clinic. So I think, you know, programs that can reach out through social media are really important. I think it would be nice to have different kinds of storylines uh, uh, in, in television and in, <clears throat> in books. The storylines I'd like to see, certainly I'd be interested in it, um, is going through this impact, uh, mm -hmm. or maybe a documentary, mm -hmm. you know, 
that highlights that even a single seizure can greatly affect someone's life. Yeah. But it is tricky, and I think it's one of the reasons why, I mean, trying to educate uh, a population at large has been tricky, and I think it's, it's uh, going to be slow going, but I, I do think that with the current technologies and, and hopefully better studies and, and more innovative technologies, we can, we can really educate everyone at large. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. Um, I learned so much. We always have the most fascinating conversations, so I appreciate you taking time from your very busy day. Thank you, and I'd like to thank you and Miguel for all you do for patients with epilepsy. Um, it's uh, been a pleasure working with both of you. Um, I, I know you both work tirelessly, not only to keep Adelaide uh, as healthy as she can be, but also to help find a cure so that this doesn't happen to other families. Thank you again, Dr. Marcicelli, for giving us such great insight into the facts and fictions of epilepsy. It is vital that the public understand how complex this disease truly is so that we can bring awareness and eventually find a cure. Help reveal the truth of epilepsy by sharing this episode with your family and friends outside the epilepsy community on social media. Finally, don't forget to visit at Seizing Life Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and at Seizing Life Pod on Twitter. Thanks so much. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CURE. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. CURE strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical condition be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual's specific health situation.